Today is the second message in a series that I have called Stressed Out. And um, what we do here at City Life is we kind of like pick a topic and then we talk about that topic for a few weeks until everybody gets tired of it. And then we're just, you know, everyone's tired of it. And then we just go on to something else. And that's actually, it's not quite that random. But, but last week I started this series and really I started with what I would consider to be the most important message of the series. And, and if you missed that, please listen to the podcast podcast. If I put you to sleep today, then please get the podcast of today's message, but hopefully that won't happen. But, uh, but uh, here's one thing that I do know. Everyone in this room has been stressed out. We all have been. Everyone's been overwhelmed. And some of you are stressed about summer school ending. Some of you are stressed about school restarting. Uh, if you're newly married, you're stressed because you're just, it's all this new stuff that's happening. If you're planning a wedding, you're stressed about planning the wedding. If, if you've been married for a while and you have that first kid that's come into your home, congratulations, but you are stressed out. I don't care how many cute pictures you put up on Instagram, I'm looking at you too. And they're getting to be some big round circles around your eyes, you know, and, and, and you, you, you're, the baby's looking awesome, but you're looking haggard. And that's really kind of how it works out. And why? Well, you know, no one in your family uh, is getting any sleep other than the baby. I, I do know how that works. I've had three of them and, and I, I've dealt with this. Just let, let you know, my oldest son, who's actually with the children in the back, so I can talk about him today and he can't, he's not going to hear any of this till he hears the podcast. But, but, uh, but my oldest son, son, when he first came into this world, we called him, you know, he was, he, we, we call him Preston, but his name is actually Timothy. And, and no kidding, he would not sleep all night until the kid was five years old. I am not exaggerating. I'm not joking. He'd wake up at night with something wrong, crying, whining, coming to the bed, daddy, daddy, daddy. And, and during this time, I was on the pastoral staff of a large church. And I worked there at that church, and, and I had a job. I had a responsibility, and, and my job, part of my job, was I had to be at the church on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 6 a.m. to lead what we called early morning prayer. Now, early morning prayer is a nice thing. It's a good thing. We're all happy about it. But when you've not slept and your kid has kept you up all night screaming and coming, Daddy, Daddy, wah, wah, cry, 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 then doing 6 a.m. prayer is not very much fun. And, and I'll just be honest with you, I didn't feel very spiritual on a lot of those mornings. You might be disappointed in me, but, but that kid in our tiny little shrunken down house that's about the size of my garage today, he would keep us awake. He'd make a peep, and then my wife and I would wake up all the time. And then I was supposed to not only be there for the prayer, but I have to go before 6 a.m. to get the room opened up and set, set the temperature, make sure the music is going and everything. And God, is, God knows this is the truth, and you're, you may not even believe it's the truth. You say, that's very unspiritual, Pastor. But I would pray sometimes, God, let nobody come today because I just want to... I just want to kind of like lay down on the chairs and, and rest in your presence a little bit. And, and, and I have no kidding. I can tell this on myself now because it's been a long time since it all happened. But I would set up the door to the prayer room so that it would make a pop if somebody opened it. And that way, if nobody was, if someone did come and they make that little pop, it would wake me up. And I would like, okay, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I would kind of do whatever I needed to do. But, but it was just, it was tough. And I didn't, it, it was, wasn't something I necessarily, I always liked, but 
but that's just part of the reality. Those are some of the hidden things about pastors that you may not know, or at least the hidden thing about this pastor that a lot of people don't know. But, but we all get stressed out, and there are certain seasons of life like that that cause more stress than other seasons of life. And some of you are in a season of life where you have a lot of stress. But today, I'm not talking about a stress that comes from a season of life. I'm not really heading there today. I'll talk about that another time. I'm dealing with stress that, that, that really happens in your life, and then that season turns into a sickness, and then it dominates your life. Now, I consider myself to be a very typical man, and when it comes to the male species, I have a lot of these male defaults that really annoy ladies, such as being headstrong and, and male. I don't know, it's whatever it is. I just don't like to ask for help. I know, maybe I think most guys are like that. You just don't like to ask for help. You can do it. You can figure it out. You can get it done. I don't need help. Like even today, my GPS quits working, and when I was out on the road quite a bit for a couple of weeks ago, I, 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 GPS would be out of range or whatever. Would I stop to ask a person for direct? There is no stinking way. I wouldn't do it. I, I just wouldn't. I don't need help. And, 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 uh, and that's just, I'm just a guy. I'm just that way. And that's kind of plagued me all of my life. But, but, but even when you finally do ask for help, you, you, you're just going to ask for it one time. And you're not going to keep going back to ask for more help. And this takes place in my life when it comes to fixing things. Because God did not bless me with the ability to fix things easily. I, I, I can help fix people but I can't fix things very well. It just doesn't work for me. I, I've always had trouble with it. If I have to change the garbage disposal in my house, it will take a full day. I don't care what you say. It doesn't take 45 minutes. And, and, and we had, when we have broken stuff at a house that you own, it just, and a guy that can't fix things very well, it, and, and a guy who doesn't want to ask for help, it makes things bad. It just does. Some of you ladies might be married to one of our small percentage of guys that are like that. And, and, uh, but this little house that we had, our first house, had this luxury. It was a very nice luxury in this home. It was the home that kept us awake with the baby all night, the, our first baby. But it had a sprinkler system. So I was very happy about that. It keeps Texas grass green in the winter, I mean, in the summer. And it, and it allows you to get your foundation watered, all those nice things that you want to happen. And so, so I couldn't get the sprinkler system to work because these heads were messed up. So I, my, my wife finally said, well, just talk to a landscaping guy. So I finally did. And, and this, this guy from our church came out and showed me how to fix it. And he fixed one and he was done like in three minutes and was gone. I said, you can fix the rest yourself. I said, okay. Yeah, I can fix it. I, I, can, I can do that. That was so simple. I promise you that this, there is no exaggeration to this. My wife's not here. She's with my, my second son at, a, at an event today. So, But she would testify this is true. I then went to fix the second sprinkler head, and I broke the, I broke the pipe that went to the sprinkler head. But am I going to ask for help? No. So I go to Home Depot, and I look at these diagrams and get all this information. And, and so I go back to fix it, and I think I fixed it. But as I'm fixing it, I break it somewhere else further down because there's water bubbling up from underneath the, the ground. So I dig a little bit more and dig and dig and dig. And no kidding, for one solid month on my day off, I would spend the entire day trying to work on this piece of pipe that ended up having a probably, I would say, about 15 different joints in it where I repaired the repairs of the repairs of the repairs of the repairs just to get the sprinkler working. And I was so stinking annoyed with it. But I I wasn't going to ask for help. I just didn't want to. Didn't want to ask for help. 
I'm not going to ask that guy to come back and help me out. My wife said, why don't you ask him to come help you? I'm not going to ask him to come help me. I'm this just stupid. I'm smart. I can do this, but I wasn't smart. And I couldn't do it. And here's the challenge is I would rather exacerbate my problem and make it worse and increase my stress than admit I had a problem and get some help. And so many of us who are in church are just like that. We have a problem. We have a problem and it's called pride. We don't want anyone to know we have a problem. So we won't ask for prayer. We're not going to ask for help. We're going to work ourselves into a frenzy to fix our problem. And the problems then end up crushing us. And that's a very unfortunate truth that I see over and over. Because all of us have stress. Today I'm going to speak to something very specifically, and this is regarding this issue of worry, anxiety, depression, and even suicidal thoughts. But today I have one big point that I'm going to be saying over and over today, and here it is. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Now, now, I don't want you to take the first part of that and say, well, you know, I can do whatever I want. You don't use that to justify sin. It is one complete thought. Now, James, who is the brother of Jesus, he wrote this book in the Bible and, and, uh, and he wrote this book and he says there in James chapter five, verse 14, I'd like for you to look at this with me because I'm going to talk about these scriptures here. He says, is any among you sick? Let them, the sick person, call the elders of the church to pray over them and ask them to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So we do this. This is our tradition based on the scriptures. And, and, uh, uh, but, but we have limited this activity that we see in James 5.14. We've limited it to physical sickness. Uh, like if you have a cold or you have a flu or if you have cancer or if you're in the hospital. But there's a lot more to sickness than this. Now, my personal experience in ministry, and this is not something that you're going to find in some psychology book or, or some, I don't know, this is just my personal experience in ministry, is that there is this sequence that happens in people's lives. And it starts with this. It starts with worry. Worry, we all worry. And so worry, though, if you do not deal with it, it leads to something further, and that's called anxiety. Anxiety, when you have that and you don't deal with your anxiety, in my opinion, and what I've seen is it leads to depression. Depression, if you don't deal with it, it's going to lead to suicidal thoughts. Suicidal thoughts, if you don't deal with those, it leads to suicide. Every one of us worry but very few of us actually go all the way to suicide. But I'm a pastor and I've held three funerals in the many funerals that I've done, three funerals of suicide victims. One through hanging themselves, asphyxiation. Another, gun, blowing their brains out. Another, taking an excessive amount of medicine and killing themselves. And I'm telling you this, it happens and it's never very pretty. And I want to help you 
I want you to see yourself somewhere on the continuum that I just showed to you. And today I want to have a conversation with you. I, I, today is not about confrontation. I'm not confronting anyone. But I want to have a conversation. I want you to think about this. I want you to open your heart up because I can speak very confidently to this situation. And I can because I personally have experienced this continuum myself. Growing up in a very conservative pastor's home, um, just a very conservative, hardworking home, I had this really solid work ethic. And I didn't realize it, but I had based my life around this works ethic, this works-based mentality of just work and work and work. And I, I believe, though, that we should all work and that we all should have a high work ethic, but it can be taken too far and it can become sin. And the truth is, I can even struggle with that still today. It's some one of those things that I always have to keep in check, and I have people in my life who help do that. But I carried the sin into my life as a pastor, not even realizing it. It hadn't been addressed. And it was, it was this thing. It was like, you got to do more. You got to work harder. You cannot stop. You cannot breathe because people are hanging in the balance. Their lives are hanging in the balance. If I don't do something about that, people are going to end up in hell. I mean, that sounds really godly, doesn't it? Well, actually, it might sound godly, but it's not. It's, it's just the opposite. I was about 32 years old, and, um, and I went to Missouri to pastor a large church. And uh, I'd left the Metroplex to go up there to pastor this church. And, but one of the things I didn't know is that the culture of the city in which I was ministering was very angry at its core. And I began to find that out very quickly. And, and I began to struggle with the anger that was in the city because I, I couldn't figure it out. It's like, I don't get this thing of seething anger that just keeps rising up all the time. It doesn't make sense in my life. I mean, I like to be happy, don't you? I mean, I just love being happy. It's like, what's wrong with all these people? They're all grouchy and grumpy. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. But, it. but as a pastor, it was something that I had to deal with because it was in my city and, and it was in my church because the people in my church are in the city and therefore they have the elements of that there. So it's in my church too. And, and uh, I started worrying about the church. I started worrying about people that were just, that were, I just saw their lives going in circles and it stressed me out. So what I did is I worked harder. <laughs> I did. I worked harder thinking if I work a little bit harder, I can really help these people. And I, I, I tried to stay happy and I tried to stay optimistic. But the thing is, I just kept worrying and my worry led to anxiety. Anxiety began to take over, and my anxiety, I, I watched how this happened. I can see it in retrospect, but it caused me to even work harder. It caused me to worry even more, and my anxiety began to control me, and I didn't even want to go out in public. I would drive 50 miles just to go shop and do business or go to the doctor so that I could be away from the culture that was there because of the anxiety of just dealing with that culture. And, and, and at that time, I began recalling things from my own past. I began recalling when my dad was a pastor, and, and, and we were in a similar area of the country. And, and it was around when I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And during that time, I witnessed people in the church who called themselves Christians and they didn't mean things to me. They didn't mean things to our family and, and to the church. And, and, and now here I am pastoring. I begin to live out my childhood fears. And my past actually came back to haunt me, except it was a hundred times greater. And I pushed this back and I suppressed it even more. And I prayed and like, oh, I'm going to be all right. Because the thing is, I'm a pastor. You know, I'm super pastor. I have a church to build. I have these things to do for God. And, and pastors, we wear Teflon. We're, we're, like, we're like Superman. You just, you just, you can shoot me and just, boom, you know, it bounces right off. That's the way it's supposed to work, isn't it? We're perfect. We don't have flaws. 
I've got things to do, plus. And, I, and, I, and at the same time, I'm stuck in this city where God has planted me. And I'm here and I have to deal with the excess of weirdos and flakes and nutcases. And so did my family. It's just like, this is something we're going to have to do. I sometimes tell other pastors about the things I experienced there, and I tell them the details of the stories, and sometimes they don't even really, they, they don't like to don't even believe me. You're like, what? You had, your children had threats, and your wife was threatened and stalked, and you, you were too, and, and death threats, and all kinds of weird stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, that was like, that was normal in that town. And that caused that anxiety to grow, and it moved into depression. And the truth is, I couldn't handle it. I was depressed. Rebecca was depressed. The kids were depressed. And as the leader of the family, I was actually carrying the brunt of all this depression. And, and uh, the only thing that would ease these feelings of depression was just to literally get out of town. And so I began to intentionally schedule time away. I found this way to get a reprieve. I could leave town and I would feel better. That was my medicine, I guess you could say. So I would, I would schedule extra out-of-town ministry work and speaking engagements and missions works. And, and I would search for staff members all across the country because it was just so much easier just to get away and I'd feel refreshed and, and I, I would go to trainings and conferences and vacations and I would do this as much as possible because I knew that the moment I came back to town, that depression would hit me again. I, I would even begin to walk through the office door at my church and I would close my office door and I would growl. I was just like, I hate this place. I did. I couldn't tell anybody. How, do you, how does a pastor tell that? I can't stand the city. I don't even like the people. I don't like anything around here. And all the time, the church kept expanding. Things kept moving forward. Why? It's because I was working my tail off. Uh, but, but it just kept moving forward. We had new buildings. We, had, we developed our 25 acres. And, and we, we, we had to set up a 24-7 prayer center. We set up a second campus downtown. We set up a young adult leadership academy. And, and I was doing the things that I do best. But, and everyone who looked from the outside were like, man, you are just awesome. That church is awesome. They were impressed. And lives are being changed. But little did they know I was dying. Depression had taken over. See, God eventually released me from that ministry, and it was right and appropriate. But my last two years there were so unhealthy, and I worked so hard, and I was so low emotionally that I was totally empty. Even as the elders uh, said, you know, I, they, they accepted my resignation. It was time for me to go. They said, you need to take some time off because you haven't taken a day off in years. You need to take some time away. And, and, and I, I heard what they had to say. And I responded. I was like, yeah, I'm going to. And I, I left Missouri and I came back here to the Metroplex. We found ourselves a rent house. And we just unloaded all of our stuff in the house. And we got into Suburban and we drove to Mexico. We drove down to Puerto Vallarta where my wife's brother has, a, has some property. It was, that's kind of a nice thing. So we went down there and we just simply spent a month. We spent a month on the beach. It looks good, sounds good. Hey, you know, beach vacation. But the truth is, uh, I would just go out and sit on the beach every day and I would cry and I would cry and I would cry. I didn't want my family, though, to even see me being sick in the tropical paradise. And so I would even try to hide it from then. It was like I had been sprinting a marathon, if that were possible. And I'd stopped cold. I collapsed to the ground and I was bleeding and I was maimed and I was all alone. I was sick front paradise and that's when the thoughts of suicide took over for the first time ever I entertained this notion to abandon my family to disappear in Mexico my su suicide plan was simple I'm going to walk out on the family. <laughs> Sounds stupid now. I'm going to become a Mexican beach bum. I'm going to, do, I'm going to get drugs because drugs is everywhere. I can just get some drugs and I can OD on drugs and die there on the beach. Um... My second week out there, 
I did walk out on the family. It was a Sunday morning. It was all a reality hit. It's like Sunday. I'm supposed to be in church. I'm supposed to be leading the church, and I can't deal with this, and that's when it just took over. I went and got the keys to the other property, to the condo, and, and I packed a little backpack, and I just told my wife goodbye. I kissed her goodbye, and she said, where are you going? I said, I said, I don't know, and I don't know. I don't know anything, but goodbye. And she said, don't leave. I said, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone. And, and what I did is my, I had planned to go to this property and to devise my scheme to leave the family. They're, they would be better off without me. I can go ahead and become a Mexican drug addict on the beach and die. Why not? Sounds good. I entertained it that entire day, that whole night. I, and I was even planning the next day to go ahead and pull the trigger on it. I'm just telling you, that's, that's me. If that disappoints you, well, I'm sorry, but I don't mind being honest. I was sick, and I was messed up. Here's what I want to say. That is not where God wants you to be. Did you know that 16% of Christians have seriously contemplated suicide. Christians, I'm talking about people who have the spirit of God in them, followers of Christ. That means in this church, three out of every 20 people have designed a creative plan to remove their lives from this earth. And I would say even considering the unique stress of people who live in a large city because there are unique pressures and, and, and there's this image consciousness, there's workaholism, there's worry, there's anxiety, there's hidden dysfunction, and there's depression. I would say it's potentially higher for us than it is for others. But there's an answer. And the answer is this, is that you need to come to Christ with it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But one of the questions that comes up is, well, if you commit suicide, is this an automatic ticket to hell? Well, I have a response to that. You don't go to hell because you commit suicide. You go to hell because you don't know Jesus, period. That's important. Now, hear me out. Some of you may have just gotten really relieved and went, yes, now I can kill myself. And it's like, no, no, please understand. That is not God's plan for your life. This concept of you go to hell because you commit suicide is actually not accurate. It's not in the Bible. I'm a person who believes in the scriptures. I believe in the Bible, and we're going to stick with that. I want to give you a quick history lesson because it's important to know where that comes from. This comes from medieval Christianity, from the Catholic culture, from the Catholic mentality of, of the Middle Ages. That's where it comes from. And it, it, it's, it's based upon two principles. One, which is a Catholic principle, says you have to have all of your sin confessed to the priest before you die. Because if you don't have it all confessed, when, when you die, you will go to hell. And then the second principle is this, that it's, it's if you kill yourself, that's called murder. And murder is a sin. And you don't have an opportunity to confess it, so you go to hell. 
I've heard this, people explain this to me many times. This, this has actually found its way into American Christianity through our Puritan roots as a nation. And therefore, it's woven even now into Protestant theology in America. And under this mentality, it, it's, just, it's ridiculous because the same mentality would be this. If you leave here and you're driving down the road and the speed limit is 65 and you're going 66, breaking the laws of the land, okay, you're going 66, and, and all of a sudden someone turns in front of you, and you crash into them, and you scream, oh, and you know, you're cussing and whatever. Under this mentality, you are going to hell. Now, that's foolish, right? So you don't go to hell because you commit suicide. You go to hell because you don't know Jesus, period. Worry, anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, this is a sickness, and it's not where God wants you to be. And please understand this regarding sickness. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Let's take a look at what the Bible says. James chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Call on the elders of the church. Now, I want you to think about this for a second here because uh, church people, I know church people well. I've dealt with church people all of my life. That's, that's been my, that's just been my whole life. And, and I'll be really honest with you. Let's just be candid here. Church people are as messed up as the people in the world. I know because I've seen it. It's, it's, it, the, the difference is, is that we have hope through Jesus and we can change things in our lives through the help of others and through the help of Christ and through the power of God's word. We can. Now, what's bad, though, is a different category. And this is my own category. You can't Google it and find it out there. Maybe you can, but I don't know. I've created it on my own. I call it religious churchy people. You hear that? Okay, religious churchy people. Have you ever run into people like that? Well, if, you, if you're new, new to Christ, probably not. Or maybe you have. You've seen them from a distance. And they're just weird. I'm just telling you, those are the weird people. They, they are, they're, they're just, they're, their lives are weird. They act weird. They're like the mean, grouchy people that do all the right stuff, but they're as poisonous as snakes. And, and the, here's the truth. If religious, churchy people would be willing to crucify Jesus, the Son of God, they'll crucify you too. <laughs> That's one of the things I love about city life is because many of you, you're new in your faith or you're coming back to faith, you're rediscovering Christ, and, and, uh, and you haven't become nor do you desire to become religious, churchy people, and I will help you to not do that as well. But can we be honest? Church in America, for the most part, is pretty people with perfect lives, with zero problems, and we show up for an hour on Sundays, and we go home, and, and that's it, because that's the safe way to do church. But when you have problems, because problems will come, or worse, if someone in your family has a problem, the religious churchy people are going to find out. They will find out. And they will humiliate you, they will criticize you, and they will kick you out until your problem gets fixed. And when you are now good enough for you to be around them again. I've heard many of these stories. I've seen them happen. In fact, one of these, some of you, you may have had something like that that you've personally experienced. I've heard some of your stories. 
I no kidding. I'm going to tell you a story. This is 100% truth. This really, really happened. Thank God not here. But there's this young man in my church in Missouri who saw our television program, and, and he, he saw it, and, and so he decided to visit church. A lot of people would come to our church because of that, and it, it was a great way of reaching out to the community. Um, but he came to our church, and, and it was his third consecutive Sunday, and I was out in the auditorium prior to the service. I saw him sitting in the auditorium by himself before worship, uh, before our third service. So I, so I went over to him and sat down beside him and, and struck up a conversation, heard little pieces of his story, invited him to coffee to hear more. And, and, but then this very holy religious churchy person who happened to be our head usher, he overheard my conversation with him. He was standing nearby. No joke. He came to me and said, that boy is my wife's hairdresser. And everybody in town knows he's gay. He's a sick man. And if you are hanging out with him and talking with him, it's going to look bad for the church. And I want to advise you to distance yourself. Because the truth is, he's not going to stay around here long anyway. And, and my wife has already decided she's not going to do business with him because she's embarrassed. Since she saw him here, she's not going to go back and get her hair fixed by, by the gay the guy that goes to our church until he leaves. Because everyone knows he's gay. Now, I promise you, I wanted to freak out. Right then, I wanted to sin. I wanted to cuss the guy out in Jesus' name, cuss him out and sin. And I'm telling you, that is wrong on every single level. My friend, that is not good. If you're a religious churchy person, goes, well, there's value in what he said. Then, you're, then you need to stop it. You need to get healing. See... In the, in the mind of the religious churchy person, and even in a lot of churches, you're allowed to come to church until we find out you're having problems with your marriage. You're allowed to come to church and, until we realize, oh, wait, mate, you have an alcohol addiction. And then that is the last place where you want to tell people that you have a problem that you're struggling with, especially such as things such as anxiety or depression or even suicidal thoughts, any kind of mental illness, because you don't want to show that at church because you're going to be blackballed, you're going to be kicked out, you're going to be humiliated if you tell anyone you're going through any of that stuff so people shut down and this has been one of those issues that the church has never dealt with in a healthy manner and it's time that it changes see many people go to church and they get this short-term reprieve from the junk of life simply because they're in this atmosphere where the presence of god is and and when they walk out the door they go right back to dealing with the same junk they've been dealing with over and over and they don't really find freedom and why was because most churchgoers and all religious churchy people have never learned this truth, which is this. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. James 5.14 puts it this way. If anyone is among you sick, call on the elders of the church, have them pray over them, and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. See that last part? See, this, this, I believe this part has a dual meaning, and there's a, there's a lot of symbolism of oil. And I want to talk to you about some symbolism here. We, we see the symbolism of oil. We see it a lot, especially in the Old Testament. So we look to the scriptures to find out what this means. We also see some examples of oil in the New Testament, and, and the principles of oil, it remains today because oil fundamentally represents the spirit of God and it manifests itself differently according to the need 
Now, there's some examples I'm going to go through very quickly. Like one is the, an example of, of, uh, of how it was used predominantly in the Old Testament, where a person needs to be commissioned to an office or a position, and God is symbolically placed upon them. They are anointed. It's like a king or a prophet or a leader or a priest. Today, we even carry that over. Sometimes we'll pray and we'll anoint a person like a pastor or a minister. It's like a commissioning. It's a recognizing that without God, you're not going to be able to do your work. That's basically what it is. That's not what I'm talking about today, though. See, anointing oil is a powerful tool because the oil itself holds no power. It's not something that's prayed over and that's blessed or anything like that. It's not like holy water. It's, 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 just, it's just oil. But the symbolism behind this, this oil is the symbolism of God's spirit, and it connects the spiritual with the physical, much the way a Holy Communion does, much the way water baptism does. See, another example that's in the scriptures is the example of where an object would be anointed with oil. And symbolically, it's, it's placing it and setting it aside and anointing it for sacred purposes. And it, it was, that, that was done for items that were to be used in temple worship. Today, people will even do that in their homes. And I think that's fine for a cleansing, spiritual cleansing. That's all, that's all fine and that's good. But that's not what I'm talking about today. The example I'm talking about today from this passage, from James chapter 5, is this, is when a person is sick and they need healing. And the Spirit of God is symbolically placed upon them, or they are anointed. And this is not even talked about in the Old Testament, but it is talked about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's mentioned a couple of times, and this is when Jesus, first of all, when he sent his followers out to heal sick people, and, and they went out, and they were to anoint with oil in the name of Jesus, and, and so they did, and saw incredible results. James, the brother of Jesus, talks about this, and he says you're supposed to anoint with oil from the, the, the these, these sick people. When they come and request prayer, when they request to be anointed with oil, you should do it. But again, the oil holds no power there's symbolism behind it and the symbolism is of God's spirit that connects the spiritual with the physical now how do you do it well to receive prayer and anointing with by oil I have basically three things here and the receiving is, is like this number one is go to the designated person for prayer and we have a prayer team. And after the service, we'll have a prayer team again. And the second thing you do is you ask for prayer. You just say, I, I want to be prayed for. And you tell them what you want prayer for. And the third thing is you just ask them to be anointed with oil. It's like, will you anoint me with oil? That's, that's it. That follows the biblical pattern. What I like to do is I don't like to add things to it. I don't like to add all these extra stuff to it. I mean, I, I've seen it like when I was a kid. I'd see some of you may have a traditional background like this. There would be this guy who would, who would get this a really like loud preacher with white shoes. And he would get this bowl and pour all this oil in it and then it's like everyone come and you're gonna get prayed for and he'd stick his hand in the oil and go slap it all across you and like okay that's kind of weird but but if, if, if please we're not going to do things that the bible doesn't say to do and so so it's it's just very very simple you just receive a little touch of oil and and there's another passage in the scripture that talks about being anointed with oil in the new testament and i want to address that too that's the story of the good samaritan the Good Samaritan anoints a man with oil, but it's very clear that the anointing of oil from the Good Samaritan was for medicinal purposes. It says he poured in oil and wine for healing. It was for medicinal purposes, not representation of the Holy Spirit. So oil also represents medicine that aids healing. There's a dual purpose in this. 
Now, my tradition regarding anointing with oil for sick people is based upon these three passages in the New Testament. And I believe in the dual use. Allow me to explain. Yes, allow people to pray for you. Ask for prayer and ask to be anointed with oil. I think that's appropriate. That's in the Bible. Also, if there is medicine that can help you with what you're going through, use it. Say, but well, what about depression? This brings up this big point. A lot of people struggle with it. Is I've been asked this. Is taking an antidepressant a sin? And I'm telling you, some churches actually teach that it is. Now, this is based upon a prominent teaching that came out of the 1970s and the 1980s by the televangelists of that era. And basically the teaching was this, that if you went to a counselor, then that was wrong and that was sinful because you could only go to Jesus. Or if you're taking antidepressants for legitimate imbalance, that that's sin because you're not trusting in Jesus. Now, the faulty logic is basically here. It's this legalistic conclusion, but it's based upon truth, which is both Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the Bible. They're referred to as a counselor. Jesus is referred to as the great physician. So Christians don't need therapists. Christians don't need antidepressants. But some people have even taken this stuff, which is wrong, and taken it so far where they won't even go to the doctor for real legitimate purposes. And you hear about it in the media from time to time. It's how a child will die when their parent won't give them medicine because the parents are afraid that they're going to sin. And that's just craziness. There are people that are out there who will say that taking an antidepressant or seeing a therapist is not trusting God, and that's faulty thinking. See, my problem is this, is that if you're going to tell someone who's suffering from depression that they're not trusting God if they have to use medicine or see a counselor, then you would also have to tell the diabetic who is going to the doctor and who is taking insulin that they should stop taking their insulin as well because they're not trusting God. And you know... That's not right. I mean, do you want to be one of those kind of people who just say, well, I'm not going to take my medicine. I'm just going to trust God. And I mean, do you really, really want to be that kind of a person? I mean, you see them on TV. They're, they're weird. They're like the, the women who wear the denim jumpers and they make their own butter. Or they live in a cave and, and you know, they, they, they have beards and mustaches. This is their men. They're angry. They wear a doily on their head. You don't want to be like that. They're out of touch with reality. You don't have to be weird to be a follower of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so if taking an antidepressant is going to help you to be a better parent, a better employee, a better spouse, a better follower of Christ, then God might be healing you through medicine. Now, I don't care how God wants to heal you. I just want you to be healed. Allow the healing to happen. Anoint with oil. Receive professional counseling. Take medicine. If your liver was shutting down and I had this pill up here and I say, hey, I can, I can give you this pill and I know that it'll work. It'll stop your liver, liver from shutting down. Would you take it? Yes, you would. Because the liver is an organ in your body and your brain is also an organ in your body. And, and if, if you will take a pill for your liver organ and not for your brain organ, then you, my friend, are a it's a, you're a hypocrite. Why live with hypocrisy? What I'm saying is if you're using antidepressants and you have felt less of a person and or even less of a Christian for doing so to stop that now, 
because God is simply using a different means to bring about your healing. He's using medicine. He's using the oil of healing. So regarding depression, it's not okay. I mean, it, it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. So don't abandon counseling. Don't abandon being anointed with oil by leaders in the church. Don't abandon medicine under the care of a doctor. Get help, but stick with a process, even if that takes years. The Bible says in James 5.15, the next verse says, and when you do this, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. So if you're sick, and I'm talking about any kind of sickness, even your brain, you come forward, you receive prayer, and you're anointed with oil, you take your medicine if you need it, and you get a prayer of faith from someone else, and the sick person will be made well. I mean, how clear is it? So I say, well, how quickly can this happen? Well, occasionally it is instantaneous. There is instantaneous healing. But the vast majority of the time, it is a process of healing. It simply takes time. See, there's no real progress in our lives unless we and until we embrace the process that God desires us to walk through. The progress involves God getting all the junk out of our lives. And that process for me included seeing a professional therapist that deals with pastors. Now, the Bible says here in this passage of Scripture, the Lord will raise him up. And it says also if they, they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. So when what God revealed to me during this time when I was in very deep depression, God began revealing to Tim Woody the sin, the sin that Tim Woody needed to deal with. And I think one of the greatest gifts that God can give us is when he reveals to us the junk in our lives and he allows us to get it out. If you're going through any of the things that I've talked about today and that I've listed today, and, uh, and, and if you are praying for God just to change all your circumstances so it can all get better, or if God pray, you're praying that God change this and this and this so everything will be better, sometimes God's not going to do that because he may not want to change the circumstances, but he definitely wants to change you through your circumstances. And that's what Jesus did for me. Worry, anxiety. Depression, suicidal thoughts, they all come really as a result of sin. And, and it may not even be sin that you've committed. It may be a sin that someone else committed that directly impacts your life. And maybe your spouse walked out on you and, and had an affair with someone else. And maybe you were rejected by your mother or your father or by both. Or maybe someone molested you. Maybe you were betrayed or, or raped or abandoned and, and you've never really dealt with it and you've been sinned against sin initiates this in our lives. If you don't deal with it, it becomes bitterness and hatred and resentment. And that's sin because it's toxic to our minds. It's toxic to our emotions and it can kill you spiritually. That's why for me, when I was in the middle of my pain, the, the biggest issue for me was to deal with my sin, to identify Tim's sin, to address Tim's sin, and to repent of my sin and simply get all that sin out of my life. And that's what brings freedom. So regarding past hurts, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Don't live in it. Don't make it your identity. 
The Bible says in James 5, 16, it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Who wants powerful and effective? I like powerful and effective. I think that's one of the nice things that's, that's out there. We can have powerful and effective prayers. I like things. Hey, don't you love powerful and effective things? I mean, one day I was working uh, where, where I, I consul- doing a, my consulting job in Waxahachie and I had to drive up here one night to, for a meeting and I knew the meeting was gonna last about four hours and then I had to drive back to DeSoto and I had a migraine, but I wasn't, I have to do it. I'm not gonna just give up. I'm not gonna call off everything because I don't feel good. So so I'm driving out this way and I, I see a Starbucks. I'm like, you know, Starbucks, I have, I use this. I have the Starbucks gold card because I buy lots of stuff there. And so I go in there with my Starbucks gold card. And at that point I had one of those free drinks. If you buy a certain number of drinks, you get free drinks. So I had my free drink coming and I went in there and I said, I've got a migraine and I really wanna deal with this. I wanna deal with it well. And uh, I, I want something really good, really good. And then the barista was like, yes, this is so exciting. So there, I was there in Midlothian, Texas, and this, this the barista was so excited. They were just, it was making their day. And I said, I have the Starbucks gold app here or whatever, my card. So so you just make it however big it is. And I know it's not going to cost me anything. So okay, what you need is this Uber Juber thing. You know, I don't know what they called it, but it had six shots in it. So I did that. By the time I was driving through, by the time I got to Mansfield, man, that migraine was gone. I was happy. I was turning on the music. I got to my meeting. I was happy. I think I talked so fast, nobody even heard a word I said. Four hours later, I'm jumping in the car. I'm driving back to DeSoto, where I used to live. And, and I'm just singing all the way there. I get back home about 11 o'clock. And I'm talking to my wife till one. She finally goes to sleep. And then I'm still awake. Like, woohoo, Jesus is good. And so I start writing sermons till about 4 a.m. when I finally start to go to sleep. And, and then, and then, uh, uh, then I have to be up at five the next morning. That's when it kind of got a little bit weird. But I'm just telling you, it was powerful and effective. Don't you like things that are powerful and effective? I like people who pray for me to also be powerful and effective. And James, what he says here is one of the ways we get powerful and effective prayers is we also confess our sins to each other. Now, you don't have to go into gross detail. You don't really need to. And we're not going to set up a, a confessional booth in, the, in, the, in here so you can kind of like, I mean, that would be kind of a cool thing. But I really don't want to do that. But, but you just have to be willing to simply say, I need, I need prayer and here's my issue. Be willing to say this, I'm not okay and I don't want to say that way. And you're opening the door to powerful and effective prayers. For me, my moment of change, what happened to me and my story, I basically have to go back to that condo where I left you in my story earlier in the message. I have to go back to that condo at the Four Seasons in Punta Mita, Nayarit, Mexico, where I was ready to end it all. I'm telling you guys, it was a very, very, very dark place for me. But the way I got out of it was, first of all, I had someone praying for me who knew that I was going through some pain. And that was my beautiful wife, Rebecca. And when I was gone during those two days, she had other people praying for me as well. No joke, no kidding. At 3.33 a.m. the next morning, I woke up to an audible voice in the condo. You know, I say, that doesn't happen. Well, it did. And, you know, you weren't there. You can't prove it. I I know it was there. I know it happened. 
I know this sounds strange, but I have this deal worked out with God, and it's kind of weird. But but if I, I've always been sensitive, like God, if you wake me up in the middle of that, I want to pray. Well, sometimes I wake up, I have to go to the bathroom. I do my pray. You know what's going on? Did I hear a bang? Did I hear a thump? Do I go shoot somebody or do I pray? I don't know. So I, I, I a few years ago, I, I set up this deal with God, like God, if you don't wake me up to pray, if you'll do it at three thirty-three a.m. and I'll look at my clock, and if it's three thirty-three, I'll know it's you. And if not, I'm gonna go back to sleep. Okay. So I I don't know. It's just something that I did. It, it is weird. It is strange. But I came up with that little agreement with God. I did that about ten years ago and it's it's allowed me to get a lot more sleep in my life that way i didn't have to guess but that morning 3 33 a.m no kidding i heard a voice in the room and that voice was in english it wasn't in spanish which scared me even more because i was in mexico and it said what are you doing exactly like that I woke up, adrenaline rushed through my body, and I sat there totally frozen, scared like I've never been scared before, yet feeling an intense holiness in the room and looking around going, what just happened? Who just talked to me? That is scary, just knowing that somebody was in the room. I sat there totally quiet. I felt God whisper to me after I realized this is probably God. I'll never forget this. He said, go back to your family in the morning. Do what I'm saying. Start the process of getting healed because I have a plan for your life and I have a plan for your family. The next day, I got up, packed up my stuff and went back to where my family was. The next day, I had the courage to call my pastor, the person that I submit to, and I told him what happened. And this pastor, pastor's a large church here in the Metroplex, and he's actually going to be preaching here next month in September. But he listened. He was nice to me. <laughs> he laughed at me. <laughs> he prayed for me. He believed in me. And at that point, I knew that it was okay to not be okay. destroy myself. It took time. I had to see a Christian therapist who works with pastors. I took medicine as needed. I've received prayer. I've acknowledged my sins and I've confessed them and God began healing me and I today am a changed man and I continue this process. So if you're dealing with worry, anxiety, depression, you're dealing with suicidal thoughts, it's not, it, it, it's okay to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way and, and if you if maybe you're here today and going man I don't struggle with any of this stuff and, well then you are now educated you're educated and you will never ever tell a person who is going through something like this that they're crazy and they need to get over it they need to pray more they need to just trust God more they need to read their Bible more or they need to have more faith you're going to have compassion you're going to be the type of person that other people can come safely to say, I need help. And this church will always be a place where that can happen. A church where it's okay to not be okay. Because perfect people, they don't exist. Starting with me. Only Jesus. I'm 
telling you guys, this is not an easy message to preach. And I know it's longer than my normal messages. And this message doesn't even make me look good. So you know, maybe it's God. He's not patting himself on the back here at all. Because really what I just did is I just took my shirt off and showed you some very ugly scars. I didn't do it for me. I did it for you. Because Jesus is your healer. You don't have to live life stressed out. Some of you may have already contemplated a suicide note. Some of you may be cutting yourself. You may be planning something in your mind or you just keep getting these thoughts like I need to just end it all. You don't. You don't. We're going to do two things here at the close. One is I'm going to give you, God, give you scriptures. Second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity for prayer. If you want to be prayed for and even anointed with oil, just go and be prayed for shy about it. Don't leave here carrying it right back out. This is the safest place. If I'm willing to show you my scars, would you be willing to get some healing even yourself? The ushers have prepared a a little sheet of paper and they're distributing those now to you. And, and on that piece of paper is a list of scriptures. And all those scriptures, I don't see anyone moving, so I'm not quite sure what's happening here. But uh, but on that list, of, on that list, on, on that piece of paper are these scriptures. And as they give them to you, I want you to take these. And each week during the series, I'm providing you some scriptures. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing, hear by the word of God. So you get this and put it on your refrigerator or whatever, put it in a place where you're going to have this and you're going to, it's going to be a part of you. This will help you. But a second thing that will help you is prayer. So as we close today, we're going to close in a unique way. Most of the time I'll give a formal closing and you'll be dismissed. Chat and have a good time. Well, I'm going to do that. But today the team is going to continue to sing and worship and, and I'm encouraging you to engage in that the way it's going to look. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. I'm going to invite you up for prayer if you would like. And some of you, you may need to come up for prayer for somebody else that you know is going through this. They can't even get out of bed today. You need to come forward for prayer for them. And receive these prayers. And when you're ready to go, you can go. They're going to keep playing music until... Everyone's done playing, done, done praying. If you need to leave, great. If you're your guest today, be sure and take your connect card over there and get signed up for water baptism, sign up to bring food, get shirts, whatever you're gonna do, and that's that's all okay. But the main thing, the most important thing that you do today is to simply receive this prayer. So I'd like for you to all stand with me. I'll give a formal dismissal here in about five minutes. At that point you can choose. And if, if you need to leave, that's understandable. There's never any shame if you need to leave. If you need prayer, you'll have the opportunity to come forward and receive prayer as well. But let's get our eyes on Jesus because he's the one we choose to focus on. We lead us, Jordan.